ILCA is, today, the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA. Hi, welcome to today's podcast. Uh, my name is Amit Singhal, uh, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Hepatology at UT Southwestern Medical Center uh, in Dallas, Texas. Uh, today, I have the honor of uh, being joined by Dr. Nicole Rich, um, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Associate Director of Clinical Research um, in the Division of GI and uh, Liver Diseases at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas um, in the U.S. Today, uh, Nicole and I will be reviewing General Session 3 from ILCA 2021, which includes six exciting abstracts uh, discussing different aspects of diagnosis, imaging, and biomarkers. So, uh, Nicole, why don't we jump right in um, and start discussing uh, these these very interesting abstracts that were presented um, at ILCA 2021. Uh, the, the first abstract was in our session was this multi-center study from the NCI-funded Translational Liver Cancer Consortium that evaluated abbreviated MRI for early HEC detection. As you know, there's been increasing recognition that ultrasound has suboptimal sensitivity for early HEC detection. And so, you know, we've had increased interest in alternative modalities, blood-based biomarkers, abbreviated MRI, et cetera. And, you know, prior studies have really shown a lot of promise for abbreviated MRI with high sensitivity. But as you know, this is really compared to full diagnostic MRI, which is a little bit unfair since the two aren't really that independent of each other. So this study addressed that limitation and compared abbreviated MRI versus surgical pathology uh, among patients who underwent transplant or reception at three academic centers over a 10-year period and had an available MRI performed within the three prior months. The investigators then took that MRI, selected sequences, and simulated this abbreviated MRI, which takes that 45-minute diagnostic exam down to about a 15-minute exam. And they identified 160 patients with early-stage HCC defined by the Milan criteria and 139 patients without HCC. So they were able to evaluate both sensitivity and specificity. Overall, the sensitivity and specificity of, of abbreviated MRI using this pathology gold standard was, were both excellent. You know, 89% and 89% really consistent with prior literature showing that abbreviated MRI has high accuracy for detection. But I think the most interesting story here is actually in the subgroup analyses, which are hypothesis generating. So abbreviated MRI had consistent performance across liver disease etiologies and obesity classes, which are important data, right, since we know that ultrasound often performs poorly in obese individuals and those with NASH cirrhosis. But AMRI had significantly worse performance in child QB or C cirrhosis who underwent transplant really only having a sensitivity of only 64% compared to 94% in those with child QA cirrhosis. And I think if this is true and verified in subsequent studies, this may be a subgroup in whom AMRI is not the answer, and we really need other surveillance strategies. So, you know, Nicole, when you take a look at this, how do you think um, abbreviated MRI, assuming this continues to be validated, may fit into our clinical practice? Do you think this is something that has promise, or you think this is just a nice way to, for people to get publications. <laughs> I, 
I agree. It's a really um, interesting study, very important. And I think, um, you know, abbreviated MRI, one of the limitations is, of course, going to be capacity. Um, you know, hospitals, we sometimes, at least in the U.S., already have difficulty getting MRI and sometimes even getting patients to ultrasound. So first, having the radiologic capacity to do all of these exams. Um, and second, you know, patient willingness to have these exams completed, I think, are two of the main limitations. Um, you know, some of the drawbacks of MRI, uh, even though it's only a 15-minute compared to 45-minute exam, would just be patients feeling claustrophobic, perhaps cost. I think those are going to be kind of two of the main indications. I think what you said about the subgroups of child pu B and C were really interesting. You know, I wonder why that is. Could it be that these patients, you know, had ascites and therefore were not able to have, you know, as clear of a exam or perhaps had a, you know, maybe some encephalopathy had a more difficult time in uh, complying with the protocol? I don't know what your thoughts are on that, uh, the child pu B and C question. Um, or if it's just the nodularity of the liver itself that's causing that decrease in sensitivity. Yeah, I think all sort of important questions that, you know, will need to be worked out as if this is verified in subsequent studies. But, you know, the the cost, I think abbreviated MRI moves us forward, but I think will really be important to to figure out and, and you know, capacity and preferences, et cetera. So, um, you know, good, exciting data, a lot of work to do um, if we want to move this forward. The second study, uh, moving on to that one, was a really interesting study that was presented by Dr. Childs um, that was from the U.K., and they were seeking to examine the accuracy and limitations of non-invasive radiologic criteria for the diagnosis of advanced HCC. And so they were able to do this because in 2017, the NHS in England actually mandated that all patients with advanced HCC needed to have histologic confirmation of their diagnosis prior to initiation of serafinib, which at that time was really the only uh, systemic uh, option available for advanced HCC. So this was these were patients enrolled from 2018 to 2020, right before kind of the enduring the ad like um, advent of all the IOs. So these were um, uh, this was a multi-center prospective audit of 11 centers, uh, 418 patients with suspected advanced HCC as determined by a multidisciplinary tumor board, and so. Um, they had a primary analysis cohort of 361 patients that were child PUA with ECOG 2 or less, um, but they did examine um, safety of biopsy in all of the patients. And so I thought this was a, you know, pretty well-rounded cohort of patients, um, you know, 20% hep C, 20% NASH, 24% alcohol, very few hepatitis B patients, um, 66% were cirrhotic, um, and about 43% were previously treated um, with local regional therapy or surgery, but none had had prior systemic therapy. Um, 70% of the patients had uh, their contrast enhanced imaging was a CT versus uh, just under a third were MRI. So what was really interesting was, you know, of course, they looked at the sensitivity of both MRI, CT, and overall uh, for patients with advanced HCC. So sensitivity was really in line with prior studies of 65%, slightly higher with MRI of 68%. But what really was the key finding here, in positive predict value was similar, um, again, slightly higher in MRI. But I think what was really kind of interesting was just under 10% of patients that did meet the non-invasive criteria of HCC had either cholangiac carcinoma or mixed tumors. Um, only 75% of the patients had enhancement, 64% had washout, and in all, only 45% met the non-invasive criteria. But of those, um, you know, just under 10% that met that criteria did not even have HCC, 
which of course could lead to, you know, inappropriate inclusion either in trials or just inappropriate systemic therapy, you know, which of course the treatments for HCC and cholangiocarcinoma are quite, quite different. The other key finding of the study was, which I thought really adds to the literature in this area was safety of biopsy in patients with um, advanced HCC. Only 13 of the 400, over 400 biopsies were non-diagnostic and there were only two adverse events in the entire study. Um, one of the patients uh, did end up succumbing to that event um, and dying, but the other one recovered without intervention. So this was a rate of bleeding of only 0.7% overall. And also there was no tumor seeding at all in the study. So I think, you know, the authors concluded that routine biopsy in patients prior to systemic therapy is important to confirm uh, the diagnosis, especially now that we have, you know, many treatment options, including, um, you know, new treatment options for cholangiocarcinoma. I think it is important to confirm the diagnosis and biopsies if you're safe. So um, and I don't know your thoughts about, you know, routine biopsy when possible. If, if you think that's something that would hold up treatment here in the U.S., or is that something that you recommend for your patients kind of routinely with advanced HCC? Yeah, I think, you know, um, Nicole, I completely agree that this is a very interesting abstract and really is timely and reflects sort of the ongoing debate in the field regarding the need or, you know, lack thereof for, for biopsy in these patients. Um, and I think you pointed out several of the important factors. And I think when you take a look at the risk-benefit ratio, um, I would say that, you know, the, the risks are probably lower than it's been historically, particularly with the introduction of the coaxial technique. You talked about low tumor seeding, low bleeding. So the risks are probably lower than the historic literature. And I think we have been increasingly cognizant that there may be patients with these mixed tumors that we also see in our clinical practice, probably more than we suspected in the past. And so I think this really reflects a larger shift in terms of, you know, the need for biopsy. And I think you will see this coming out in the new AASLD recommendations, where um, I think you're going to see a recommendation for biopsy in all clinical trials. That's going to be the, the ASLD recommendation as well. Um, and also for academic centers to continue to consider this even outside of clinical trials because of these reasons you say. So I think it's a, it's a really nice abstract and really reflects the increasing acceptance of, of biopsy. Now, you do bring up an important point that not all centers are able to get a biopsy done in a routine, quick manner. And so I do think this is a matter of that, you know, a, a health system's ability to not withhold care or delay care to get that biopsy. But I think we're going to see more and more biopsies be done in practice. So, uh, you know, the, the third abstract in our session was one from uh, Pierre Nahan and colleagues, and this looked at the cost effectiveness of MRI-based surveillance in high-risk patients with cirrhosis. So the study really did two separate things. The first thing they did was leverage full, four cohorts in France and determined what proportion of patients with cirrhosis were non-viral etiologies, post-SVR or suppressed hepatitis B, so these you know, more contemporary etiologies, would be defined as high risk. So, um, you know, in, in this study, they defined this as greater than 3% per year. They constructed a 16-point scoring system, including many readily available um, clinical factors, and found overall using this clinical risk score, one-third met the definition of high risk, i.e., once again, greater than 3% per year. So this is important because there's enough patients where then they have that are high risk for, you know, future studies. 
They then constructed a Markov model comparing ultrasound and MRI surveillance in this high-risk cohort, and they found that MRI detected HCC at an early stage in 63% of patients compared to 14% of patients with ultrasound. Now, this Markov model used inputs from the PREA study, the South Korean randomized control study for MRI-based accuracy, and used data from the French cohorts in terms of ultrasound-based accuracy. And overall, this resulted in um, an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of just around 15,000 euros per life year. So well below the typical, um, you know, threshold of 50,000 euros per life year. So, you know, Pierre and colleagues then performed sensitivity analyses. MRI remained cost-effective if the ACC incidence was lower, including an, um, an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of 46,000 euros per life year if the incidence was as low as 1% per year. Um, and finally, in probabilistic sensitivity analysis, MRI had 100% probability of being cost-effective among high-risk patients at a willingness to pay threshold of 50,000 euros. Once again, a typical, you know, threshold for cost-effectiveness. Now, I think the most interesting thing is they didn't stop at this, you know, modeling study. So, um, you know, Pierre and colleagues are now launching this concept in a large randomized control trial, the fast track trial, comparing ultrasound and MRI based surveillance in patients with a predicted um, HCC incidence greater than 3% with a primary endpoint of very early stage detection. So BCLC stage zero HCC. So I think this, this is a really cool study and not just because, you know, it started and showed that this likely um, is important and can be cost effective, but because they're now taking this into a real randomized control trial where we should have the answer in terms of knowing, you know, the, the sensitivity of MRI um, versus ultrasound for very early stage detection. So I think, you know, cool data right now, but I think even cooler data to come out soon. Totally agree. I think it's a really interesting study. I think the burning question is going to be what do we do for surveillance for patients who have a less than 3% risk per year? Uh, of course, identifying those is important, but especially, you know, with the increased prevalence of uh, NAPLD-related HCC, where clearly the risk is lower, as well as patients who have treated hep C with SVR, where the risk is also likely lower than 3%. And many of those patients, kind of what will be kind of the strategy there, but this is a really cool study and important first step. And um, I wonder your thoughts on kind of how you think the uh, blood-based biomarkers will, would fit into this um, and if that might be something they're able to examine as well um, as part of this RCT. Yeah, no, I mean, I think obviously I'm a big fan of the blood-based biomarker strategy. I think it, um, you know, would make it so it's easier to do surveillance and can thereby increase effectiveness in, in multiple ways. Um, unfortunately, at this time, there's no biobanking as part of this trial, and they're not able to evaluate the additional value of biomarkers, at least as planned currently. But, you know, I think will be something very important um, as we move forward in, in terms of figuring out, you know, the concept of precision screening and applying the best tests to the best patient is, you know, where do these different strategies, including blood-based biomarkers, fit in, um, you know, particularly as we think th back to the concepts that we discussed before cost-effectiveness of MRI-based surveillance capacity, tolerance, et cetera. I don't think it's going to be a one-size-fits-all answer. I think we're really going to have to think through multiple options and applying that as we've done for other cancer screening programs. So um, the fourth study in our session was uh, 
presented by Dr. Kudo from Osaka, Japan. Um, so this was a secondary analysis or really an exploratory analysis of data from the I Am Brave 150 um, trial, so well-known uh, to this group, um, of course, was an open-label phase three study of atezolizumab, bevacizumab versus serafinib for unresectable HCC. And what this analysis was looking at was the impact of baseline um, ALBI grade on outcomes, both on overall survival as well as time to liver, deter- uh, liver function deterioration. So, you know, some of the subgroups um, in this analysis were quite small. Um, so that is one of the limitations that that was acknowledged. But I think this was a really interesting study in kind of showing us that, um, you know, the tizolizumab, bevacizumab seems to be safe across um, ALBI subgroups. So um, just to review the ALBI grade, I guess one of the benefits of it is that it just relies on albumin and bilirubin compared to child pew, which requires a little bit more of a subjective assessment of both ascites and encephalopathy. Um, so the ALBI grade, you know, is just kind of plug into the calculator. Um, what they did in this study was they used a modified ALBI. So grade one is kind of the best liver function. Grade three is the worst. They subdivided um, grade two into 2A and 2B for the purposes of the study. And of course, patients with grade three uh, were not included in the original trial. So in this study, they found, so of the 501 patients, you know, uh, just to remind everyone in the trial, they were randomized two to one, a tizobev, uh, versus serafinib. The primary endpoint um, was overall survival, and a secondary endpoint was time to deterioration of liver function. They found that the groups, uh, when subdivided by ALBI grade 1, 2A, 2B, were relatively similar, except that the 2B group had a higher percent, a higher proportion of patients had an AFP over 500, a higher proportion had varices, as you would expect, had more significant portal hypertension. Um, and if, as you may also expect, a higher proportion of those in the ALBI grade one group had had prior local therapy um, in the past. So those are just things to consider. But when they looked at overall survival by ALBI grade, I think one of the most interesting things was um, in grade one, so there was a clear um, benefit um, of atezolizumab, uh, bevacizumab versus serafinib, whereas that benefit was kind of mitigated in overall survival or attenuated, I guess, between the atezobev and serafinib groups, both in ALB grade 2A and 2B patients. So I think that was one of the key findings. The second one was they noted, so Dr. Kudo presented the kind of delta ALB score over time and found that the score was relatively stable at 12 months in both um, the atezobev and group and the serafinib group. Um, of course, the treatment duration was higher in the atezobev arm um, in all three ALB groups, um, but it, it seemed that this you know, it appeared safe um, in all ALBI grades uh, in this study. Um, and the time to deterioration of liver function, again, which he defined as a um, 0.5 increase in baseline from modified ALBI score over two separate visits was similar in the atezobev and serafinib arms. So I think kind of some of the takeaways of the study were, you know, again, appear safe. There was kind of the improvement in overall survival seen in the grade one group more so than in grade 2A and 2B. So I, I don't know, Amit, what your thoughts were about this study. I think, um, you know, again, it's maybe just more more data showing us that this is uh, safe and tolerable in patients, even with maybe who are child PB7 uh, or yeah. higher alpha grades. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the safety data is very important. Obviously, you know, I think the first thing is to make sure we don't do any harm. And I think it's nice to know that um, atezobev was well tolerated in those patients with higher LB grades. Um, you know, not higher rates of variceal bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. And so, like, I think that's the first thing that I take away. 
The second thing is, um, you know, as you pointed out, I think it becomes harder and harder as your liver function like is worse to show differences between different therapies. Um, you know, this is a it's a tough disease. It's a it's a cancer within a cirrhotic liver. Um, and so you have two things that are constantly sort of, you know, competing to kill you at any one point. You know, this is it's it, it's an important finding in terms of also showing that it gets tougher to show differences in therapies as your liver function is worse. And, you know, I think Dr. Kudo talked about this maybe being incorporated as a stratification variable in future trials, um, which I think is, is also a reasonable concept in terms of thinking through if, if we should do that or not. But but interesting data, I think, important as as a TESOVEV gets rolled out in clinical practice, it helps us feel comfortable in, you know, using this um, in patients with, with higher LB scores. So the, the next abstract that we have, you know, is is it also an interesting one examining circulating tumor cell-based um, mRNA scoring system for the prognostication of HCC. And this really addresses the clinical heterogeneity that we know exists among patients with a similar tumor burden. You know, prior studies have identified tissue-based signatures, known prognostic significance, and they hypothesize that these tissue-based signatures could be translated into a liquid biopsy setting. Um, and, um, you know, the, they combined this nano-Velcro CTC assay for enriching HCC circulating tumor cells and then a nano-string encounter platform for quantifying the HCC circulating tumor cell risk score panel um, in this enriched HCC CTCs. They identified 10 prognostic genes that were highly expressed in HCC with low expression in um, white blood cells and then they examined its prognostic role. They found that it accurately discriminated survival as well as risk of post-resection recurrence in the TCGA HEC cohort. And then they validated its ability to predict survival in an independent cohort of 40 patients um, um, that were locally recruited, and they found that, that um, in that cohort, this panel had a hazard ratio of 6.5 um, for predicting survival after adjusting for BCLC stage and CTC count. So, you know, I think these results are definitely interesting, and it examines an area of need. It would be a huge advance if we were able to better determine which patients had indolent versus aggressive tumor biology. I think one, you know, some an area that our group, um, you know, has, has been involved with as well. Um, this could be used to identify patients who could benefit from more aggressive therapies, such as maybe adjuvant therapy after resection if those trials are positive, or maybe to surveil it, to, you know, tailor surveillance algorithms, you know, sort of like the retreat score has done for post-transplant patients. You know, I don't, I don't, what, you know, Nicole, um, any, any thoughts about, about this sort of interesting early analysis, um, in terms of clinical implications or, or next steps? I agree with you. I think the results are really interesting. It may be, you know, a little ways away from the clinic right now in terms of the technology, but I think any tool that we can get, especially for prognosis, um, you know, that's kind of patient's main concern is what is what is my prognosis. And I think a blood-based test that we would be able to give them better data on that, of course, would be very welcome. So um, look forward to kind of seeing more from, from that group um, in this area. Yeah, for sure. So our last um, abstract in our session was presented by Dr. Uh, Takada from Japan, um, and this was a really interesting study looking at undernutrition in patients with HCC. You know, as you know, there's really limited data on the prevalence um, and clinical outcomes of patients, um, you know, with malnutrition, cachexia, and sarcopenia in, pa in patients with HCC. 
Um, so this was a single center retrospective study from Japan, as I mentioned, of 738 patients with HCC over a 10-year period. They reviewed um, CT scans of all of these patients, and they performed uh, psoas muscle index measurements uh, to assess sarcopenia. This was a cohort mainly uh, predominantly men, 72%. Median BMI was 23. 76% of the patients were CHALPU A, and very few were CHALPU C, only 2%. Um, they did include patients across TNM staging um, with about, you know, 20 to 24% stage 1, 2, and 3, respectively. Um, they did find that sarcopenia was present in 29% of patients, which they, we didn't get results, you know, by uh, stage in subgroups, which I thought would have been interesting. But I think that that's a higher percentage than we recognize um, when these patients present to us. Um, I, I think they're not often considered to be cachectic or frail or sarcopenic. So I think that was important, just showing the prevalence of sarcopenia in this patient population. Um, they then examined overall survival according to sarcopenia status, um, where they found a significant difference in um, survival in men by sarcopenia status, whereas they did not find much of a difference at all um, in the 200 women in the study, um, really whether they had or did not have sarcopenia by psoas muscle measurement, you know, the, the overall survival was similar. Uh, again, the subgroups were quite small. There was only 30 women total with sarcopenia. So that was one of the findings. The second finding was they then examined prognosis according to a cirrhosis undernutrition score that they developed that went from zero to three, the three elements they looked at were albumin less than 3.5, child P class B or C, uh, and the presence of sarcopenia, as I mentioned. Um, and, and, you know, as you may expect, the more elements that you had there, the worse survival. I think one of the things that's very tricky is in patients with child PBC, you know, they kind of have this competing risk of mortality, of course, from the cirrhosis itself, um, in addition to the HCC. Um, they also tend to develop ascites, which, you know, we've seen in our studies is one of the kind of difficult things when you're assessing weight loss in patients with cirrhosis. Of course, um, if they're not child PA and they have any degree of decompensation, they may have weight fluctuations with diuretics or after a large volume paracentesis. So some of these, you know, kind of nuances, the authors, you know, we didn't really um, hear about that in the um, oral presentation. But I, but I think this is a really interesting study showing, really raising awareness that um, sarcopenia, cachexia, frailty, these are important concepts in HCC that have been underexplored. Again, one of the challenges, I think, is that these concepts are overlapping, but they are distinct. So, for example, you know, all patients, you know, malnutrition is really hard to assess in a, a retrospective study. You know, all patients with uh, Cachexia are malnourished, but certainly not all malnourished patients have weight loss and are cachectic. So um, I think much more study is needed in this area, but I think it's a promising, uh, certainly biomarker, you know, the presence of either cancer-associated weight loss or, you know, presence of sarcopenia is an important biomarker for HCC prognosis. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts about that study. Yeah, no, I think you covered it very well. I mean, I think the most, the most interesting aspect of this uh, is really those Venn diagrams. Right. So those Venn diagrams of cachexia, frailty and, and sarcopenia um, and then the, you know, overlaying this sort of Venn diagram of cirrhosis and HEC. And so figuring out, you know, what component is due to which um, and how the three factors overlap versus our, you know, distinct entities is going to be a lot of work um, and will require very large cohorts. But I think, like you said, I think the key thing is we at least are starting to recognize this more and more. Um, and I think these objective 
um, at least more objective measures, are probably going to be an advance based on ECOG performance status. And so, you know, you saw the, the most recent BCLC um, update that was published in Journal of Hepatology, um, you know, starts to incorporate more objective measures of liver dysfunction. And I think the nice thing is we're doing the same thing on ECOG performance status and taking a look at these objective measures. So I'm all for objectivity and I'm all for advances. And so I think this is another area where there's a lot of work to do. And um, so exciting to see. You know, with that, you know, Nicole, it's been a a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun moderating the the session with you and, um, you know, a lot of fun to to think back now and review these abstracts sort of a, a few months later. But um, excited to, to, to do that and um, even more excited, looking forward to ILCA 2022, which will be in person, yay. Um, and, um, you know, I think it'll be a lot of fun to, to hear all the advances in, in sort of liver cancer that we, that we um, will see in this area um, over, this, over this past year. Thanks so much for, for doing this with me. Thank you, guys. ILCA. ILCA is today the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA.